This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Thanks so much for being here, everyone. Uh, it's so exciting to see such a, an awesome turnout. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out the exhibition yet, it's amazing. It's really exciting to be able to go to an exhibition like that and just play games all day. Um, but listening to those stories as well will be fantastic. Um, so I'm sure you've been to a panel before. I'm going to ask some questions to our fantastic panelists, and then we'll throw out to questions at the end if you have questions that you'd like to ask. Uh, so now I'll introduce our panel guests. Um, you'll hear from all of them throughout the course of the panel um, and what they do and, and the kinds of work that they've that they've created. So um, next to me I have Dr. Helen Stuckey, then we have Brooke Maggs and Nicole Stark down the end. Um, so yeah, I think we'll just kick things off straight away so that people can start hearing about some of the things that you've worked on and we'll show some um, uh, gameplay from some of the games that they've been a part of as well. So we'll start with the general question to the panel and this is probably the most I love and hate questions like this, <laughs> it's, but it's worth just kind of getting it out of the way to start with. What are the kind of assumptions or prejudices that really frustrate you when it comes to talking about women working in the games industry? First. <laughs> There's so many. Yeah. Um, I had kind of a eureka moment um, when I was very young and working in games uh, early in my career. And, uh, you know, I'd, at first I tried really hard to just be like the guys in every way. And um, I walked into the QA room and I heard a couple of the guys bitching about one of my animations. They're like, oh, female animators. And that's when I realized that I would never be one of the guys. <laughs> and uh, I went out and I bought a packet of ladybug stickers and stuck them all over my monitor. It was like... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just going to own this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the thing that irks me, the got to be one of the guys. Yeah. I think um, just uh, Nicole and I were just talking about before that there is also a certain type of game that women uh, are expected to play or that they play mm. or it's quite surprising that they like to play shooters or, you know, it seems that there is a... a um, there are gendered kinds of games to play, which I don't think benefits anyone, <laughs> you know, because, you know, everyone should be able to, to play what they want to play. I suppose all the usual assumptions that, that the, the women on the team will be the artists, not the coders or the mm. designers, um, mm. that the people are always surprised that you actually play games <laughs> uh, oh. when it's your profession. Yes. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> um, yeah. It, 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 and there's so many in so many sort of subtle ways often too, yeah. It's a frustrating cycle because um, the people that make the game will obviously inform the kinds of games that we get to play as people and if it's always men making those games then we get games that kind of don't really uh, include women in their stories in a way that I think women really want to see themselves. So it's frustrating that it kind of keeps sort of perpetuating that cycle that, that women don't want to play games that they don't see themselves represented well in and then don't want to work in the industry. So 
it's great that we're starting to sort of see a more confident shift in, in I suppose, women working in games to be able to change that. Uh, just can I have one more? And it's mm. kind of <laughs> one that's got Hollywood uh, connections is the notion that, that games that women enjoy don't sell. You know, like they're not financially viable, mm. um, which has long been a Hollywood myth that's mm. just been blown out of the water. And um, when you look at the sort of games that women like, well, women quite like Minecraft, and that's, that's done pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Helen, you've been at the forefront of games research for nearly two decades, um, <laughs> which is an achievement. Um, so can you, come, can you take us back to when you first became interested in games and... I suppose, what the industry looked like for women at that time. Ah, I have some slides. Can I have my slide? Oh, there they are. <laughs> okay, this is the first game I played on the uh, computer that my father bought in 1979, which was the CompuColor, which was the very early color computer, because uh, he thought uh, that computers could be important and that um, his kids should uh, know what they are. But um, I didn't really like the computer, and my basic programming was not very good. So I played mostly this, um, and that's what the original books looked like. They were they were stapled on the spine <laughs> um, with my older brother, who was and still is very very good um, as a dungeon master. So this was really really my gaming world for many many years, plus Paranoia and Call of Cthulhu, uh, more than the computer games. Till my dad got the Amiga. Um, which is just a gorgeous machine. Um, and then uh, I played games on that, and then when I moved out of home and was more interested in bands, uh, I played all the games my dad sent me, which were things like Lemmings and Warcraft, a lot of Warcraft, oh, and a lot of um, flight simulators, which I never played. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he loves computer games, yeah. But... Um, this is what took me back to games in the 2000s uh, when artists started to use game engines to make games. Um, that's what brought me back to video games. Um, and because I was working with artists making interactive screen-based work, and this is Acme Park, a, a project I, I was involved in for producing for Acme that uh, um, was made by the Select Parks guys and was finished in 2003, which was a virtual uh, ACMI sound park. Okay, so that's my history. I'm going to keep going on Australia's history. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, what, um, it was a great story there. What was um, everyone's game, I suppose, that got them hooked on video games? And I suppose at what point did you think that you could make a career out of it? Well, it's interesting, Helen, that you mentioned that your dad got you into a lot of games. My dad got me into a lot of games as well. Um, he's very techy, so he was the main reason we had um, a computer in the house and I would just sort of sit and watch him use the computer so that I could learn. Um, and then I played um, Lemmings as well. Like, when you said that, it just totally took me back. I completely forgot Lemmings was a very <laughs> key part, like learning where to, you know, put them in the different types that you had. Um, so, yeah, and then I grew up playing Sonic the Hedgehog with my little sister. Um, I always made her be Tails and I was Sonic. <laughs> <laughs> she was the little sister. I, just, I need you to come and play Sonic with me so you can help me up over this, you know, thing. Um, so, yeah, playing Sonic, playing Mario, of course. Um, and then as I got older, I really love, I actually really do like Wolfenstein and Doom actually as well. Yeah, um, that's 
a little bit about me. What, <laughs> did you play Lemmings as well? Lemmings? No, I didn't. Oh. Um, I grew up in like a really small country town. Nobody had computers. I didn't really have anything to do with them until I was about 20. So wow. I missed a lot of things. Yeah. But uh, my first semester of uni, I uh, spent my textbook money on a Mega Drive and Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think everything I've done since has just been to justify that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, with Wolfenstein, in the, in the 90s, I ran an artist-run space in Melbourne called the Basement Gallery. We had this little um, Apple Mark in there, mm -hmm. and uh, we had one game on it, which was Wolfenstein. And uh, every artist in that gallery because you had to sit in the gallery, just became a gun at Wolfenstein. <laughs> <laughs> we should have could have fielded a team. So, yeah. How amazing that that franchise is still going. <laughs> um, yeah, similar to you, Helen, I think, well, I mean, when I grew up, um, my parents were really anti-video games, so I didn't have consoles in my house. And I, I played a lot of video games at friends' houses. Everyone had consoles but me. Um, but one of the, the game that really kind of hooked me was a text-based role-playing game or a MUD, a multi-user dungeon. Mm -hmm. And it was very much kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons experience where everyone was kind of role-playing um, in this online world. And I think because I read a lot of fantasy fiction, for me that was a, an extension of, of the worlds that I already really loved. And then from there it was World of Warcraft and then a bottomless pit of just games that I've never come <laughs> out of. <laughs> How long were you stuck in the World of Warcraft hole? Um, Did you just like it's, max it was out a, with was your a kind of, and then It like, was a dark well, time in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was like going to uni, but then working in a call center at night and then going home and playing World of Warcraft. And then there was not a lot of time for sleep in oh, there. And nice. it was just a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what would you say are the most significant changes that you've seen for women? And I would say we can answer that in terms of women in the industry, but also I suppose the way we see women in video games as well. And this is a question for the panel. Um, to me, the most significant change is that we've found each other. Yeah, that's and a really nice And we have answer. each other's back. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. there's a real growing awareness um, of the need for women in the industry, of the commercial value of diversity mm. in the industry, of the creative value of diversity in the industry. And um, with the IGDA in their uh, developers' surveys, that they do every year. And in the 2016 one, you really see um, there's a, a real move statistically between people's awareness of mm. actual issues, mm. like mm. these kind of issues about gender, about race, um, about um, problems with sexism from game players, mm. are actually now in the forefront of, of people's minds, mm. when, when previously I don't think that there was the consideration there was previously. And with this acknowledgement becomes real positive moves to do something about it. Mm. Yeah. I think what you say is so right as well, Nicole. Um, mm. When I f first started um, working in television, I've just only hosted shows about video games. Um, mm. You know, I was getting to know a lot of games journalists at the time, and most of them were men. So the community was very male-centric at the time. And, you know, like you mentioned, yeah. my initial instinct was to try and be one of the boys so I could just prove myself. and. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of felt that I lost a bit of my identity along the way because mm. I was trying to be someone that I wasn't. And it, I've never made a game in my life, but it wasn't until I kind of 
and to the community of, of women who are involved in games development that I realized that there's just this awesome support network of women and it's so great how everyone supports each other. Um, there's a great group called Widget, uh, Women in Games and Everything Tech, I think it stands for. Um, and just being a part of that online community and hearing anyone, you know, everyone kind of encouraging each other and talking about their achievements or venting frustrations or experiences they've had or helping other people get work in the industry, it's just, it's super wonderful. Mm. I also don't get a sense that there's um, like a legitimate way to be in games, mm. if you know what I mean. You know, you're, you yeah. can be researching games, you can be making them, you can be, you know, talking about them on television, you know, and all of that is really lovely. I think too, more to what Nicole was saying as well, is there are more initiatives now for women in games, like the fellowship, um, the GDAA does a lot of things for them, um, MCV Pacific, um, those things in terms of the industry side of things, I think um, have definitely helped. Also, um, when you were talking about the games specifically, I think mm. there are some more, game, more games out there now that I've played that I would have loved to have played when I was younger in terms of representing mm -hmm. women, like, um, like Life is Strange and Gone Home. Like I think I would have just really loved to have had those games when I was younger, but it's great that they're around now. Yeah, mm. especially, and I think seeing that filter through into the big AAA blockbuster kind of money-making games as well. I think the reboot of Lara Croft did a lot to change people's perspective of what a successful um, action-adventure game could be with a, with a woman who wasn't highly sexualized. And um, Horizon Zero Dawn as well, that was really great to see that do so well even though a woman was the female character. <laughs> Shock horror. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean, like in the eyes of publishers. It's right, just, it's like, well. They still see it as a gamble. And as you say, oh. Helen, it's a myth that, that that's not going to sell. Um, I actually had some history stuff. Did you want to see that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Show Can I have my slides stuff. back? <laughs> Sorry. Um, the first uh, Australian game as we like to call it, was actually written by a woman. Really? Um, the <laughs> Hobbit, which was a text adventure game written by Beam Software Melbourne House, which was a huge hit. You'll still find it in top games of all times lists around the world. They allegedly sold over a million. I say allegedly because we can't find any numbers that will actually prove that, but uh, it was certainly released for over nine different platforms after its Spectrum release, and is a hugely influential game. Um, which seems really strange that it was written by a woman at the time, but Veronica was a studying computer science at Melbourne Uni and she applied for the job at Melbourne House. It's also not that surprising when you realise that Melbourne House were publishers and they recently published two very significant books um, <laughs> on women at the time, Australia's Own Women, Sex and Pornography by Beatrice Faust and uh, Lynn Farley, who's an American author's book uh, on um, work on sexual shakedown and also one of the directors of um, Beam Software was Naomi Milgram who is uh, like Australian businesswoman of the year at the moment so yeah one of our leading businesswomen because Melbourne House was a book publisher um, before it became a games publisher it started making uh, writing books about computing when computing became a hobby and then it started developing games um, and there's been lots of women uh, in the early games industry. Uh, Donna Bailey uh, famously did Centipede for Atari's arcades uh, with Ed Logg. Um, come on, Carol. Carol Shaw um, famously did River Raid uh, for the Atari 2600. Um, 
And of course, Rowena Williams from Sierra Online did a whole series of, of games, including you know, Mystery House and King's Quest. And so um, women have always been famous, been part of the, the games industry, and they have a strong history. Um, but we often don't think about women in games because there's so few of them. And when Jermaine Greer wrote her book on women in art in 1979, The Obstacle Race, she called it The Obstacle Race for a reason, because the book does look at women and does throughout the history of art and does show that women were produ productive and successful artists. But also it dwells on the question of what, what were the obstacles? What prevented there being more women? What did women have to overcome um, to be successful artists in the, in the story of the history of art, and why don't we see them there? And these are the same questions that we have to ask ourselves when we ask ourselves questions about the history of women in games. Um, so it's not one of, of talent or creativity, it's one of kind of obstacles and options and, ex and access. Because women have had a long role in the history of computing. Um, that's Kay Thorne there. That picture's actually from 1964. Um, but the original computer lab that CIRAC was in at Melbourne University was founded in 1959, I think, yeah. And she was one of the original team as the technical assistant. And you can go and see CIRAC. It's the only surviving first-generation computer in the world. It's in the Melbourne Museum. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> um, they played games on it. Of course they did. Because <laughs> um, women were often part of these teams. And in fact, there's a fantastic history of super women and supercomputers. Um, and this is the Kodak Center in Coburg in Victoria. And you can see all the data processors working on the computers there. And you can see they're all women. Um, and this is in the early 60s. Because women were part of this early generation of computing. And this is a fantastic image of uh, a female programmer, whose name I don't know because it wasn't on the slide. Um, but she has got 62,500 punch cards there, which is a full five megabytes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what happened when um, they realized that computing was actually more than data entry um, and that women were actually coding and they were doing these quite sophisticated jobs, uh, that they realized that it was actually man's work. And uh, many of these women who had been leading in this area then had to train men to do their jobs and those men were paid at a higher salary. So when we look at the history of women in games, we have to ask ourselves questions about what's missing, what happened, what were the opportunities that women had? What were the assumptions that meant that we, we didn't get all the women uh, creatives that we may have got? And this is another example of how that sort of history works. This is the quill uh, written for the, um, the Spectrum in 1983 by a Welsh software designer. And it was a game system for writing text adventures. So think of it as a really, really primitive game engine. Um, it was enormously popular. If you go to World of Spectrum, which is the big fan site for Spectrum games, there's over 2,000 text adventures saved there. Over 1,000 of those, more than half, are either written in Quill or Paw, uh, which was the next version of it, which had graphics, um, written by people in this system. So it was enormously popular. But we don't know much, about, we don't hear much about it in the history of games. Uh, one, it wasn't popular in North America, it was popular in Europe, Australia, and the UK, so it doesn't get picked up in North American histories. It was also incredibly popular with women. In fact, 
uh, most of, a lot of the writers were women and a lot of the people that managed and organised the clubs were women. Um, Dorothy Millard is an Australian writer, who a games designer, who wrote lots of games for Quill. I mean, hobbyist games designer, but it was the 80s, so there was a very small distinction. Um, and uh, she also worked on these fanzines. Uh, these are UK fanzines, like Adventure Probe. And one of the things I find most interesting about this is we have a very heroic history of modding in games that's very much attached to the arrival of the game engine. Um, and how you could manipulate the technology and the teams that, that kind of developed around mod culture and the things they developed that we, we celebrate, uh, how they wrote and shared their own games, um, how they formed communities um, around these games. All of this was happening in an analogue way around text adventures in a predominantly female-driven uh, clubs and societies. But it's all been left out of history. Now, a lot of that is to do with the technology narrative that drives in games, but there could also possibly be a gendered narrative in that as well. And by technology narrative, do you mean that the text adventures were more popular with women because they had access to that mode of production? Or? No, because games history is always based on the idea that the next game is the best game. Right, okay. So faster processing power, better graphics. So, yeah. Right, okay. And the technology narrative around um, modding is that you actually got these games engines that you had access to. So it's, a, it's again embedded in, in the technology narrative. Well, this was in some ways a backward-looking technology. Okay. Yeah. Going back to six inches. All right, that, that ends the history lesson. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've talked a little that bit about amazing. the history. Can you describe perhaps what the landscape is for women like now uh, in the industry, maybe both here and, and overseas? Um, the player landscape in Australia, according to the latest report, which is being launched tomorrow in Australia, Melbourne, um, is at 46%, down from 1% from 47% uh, percent female players. Uh, in the IGDA surveys, and you've got to understand that that's people participate in that, so that's an international survey for game developers. So it depends on who answers the questionnaire. So that makes sense. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how much statistical weight. Um, people identifying women are at twenty-three percent in games development, but that's not role specific. So we don't know what roles mm. they're playing. So that's an increase because um, it was it's gone up considerably. Um, but that also might be to do with the landscape of games developments changed dramatically. So mm. it's like. We haven't got the large studio environment now. Mm -hmm. uh, in many places, we've got much more kind of independent creatives. So it's you can choose to be a games designer and be a games designer. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So last night we had the opening of Codebreakers: Women in Games, um, which is the first Australian exhibition celebrating the achievement of women working in the games industry. Uh, and you were part of the curatorial team. Uh, or the advisory committee for the exhibition. So what were you and the curatorial team taking into consideration when you were selecting the artists and the games that were featured in the exhibition? Uh, diversity. So um, diversity uh, in the developers, so different kind of, um, sort of uh, interests and backgrounds. Um, uh, it's great to have uh, Maru Nihal Niho there, who's a, a proud Maori woman, and one of her games is obviously, you know, about uh, Maori warrior culture. It's been a, a pa tower defence game, um, 
and, and also diversity in uh, the kind of work. Um, so what you were sort of saying before, Brooke, about not wanting to represent there being a kind of a typical kind of game that women mm. might develop. So, you know, having racing games, um, having, you know, space trading games, mm. having mm. That, that kind of mix of, of genre, having a, a, you know, a really elegant platformer, you know, which is a really, yeah, that yeah. just totally knows, knows the genre and, you know, just, yeah. And, and also, um, like in objects in space, having that kind of fantastic uh, mm -hmm. interface in the you know object in mm. in a gallery spaces or objects in gallery spaces are always cool, and and with um, astro astrologlaster having an unreleased game which people can't play anywhere else. There you go, isn't that fantastic? Right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a number of the games have women as protagonists or you know key people key people in the game as well, was that a factor or was that... Oh, sorry, I'm just asking questions, <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> um, it, it was, yeah. yeah, and yeah. there was a game that I really wanted to get that we couldn't uh, oh, get. Okay. That actually, that was a really key in, for that game in particular. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, yes. So, a question for the panel. What does an exhibition like Codebreakers mean for uh, the industry and specifically women in the industry? Well, I think it's fantastic that, as um, Helen was saying, that it showcases their work, that there's a diversity of also roles in the development teams for women. Like they're all, um, you know, the producers, uh, writers, designers, programmers, um, which is, you know, super great um, for other women and girls and people to come along to the exhibition and see that those jobs exist and that they're accessible and that they're things that people do. Um, I think, again, seeing the diverse range of games is really great, but also the diverse range of games being made in Australia. I'm not sure if people necessarily know about them or, or know that they exist or where they can find them or, you know, that there are people in Australia making games. I thought that happened in America, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, for the, for the casual people who may not be, you know, as engaged with games as perhaps a lot of us are, that, that can be quite surprising. So Code Breakers also, you know, helps with, with that. Yeah, I, I think celebrating the great work that women are doing in the industry helps to normalise the idea that women are doing great work in the industry. Right, yeah, yes. exactly. I, yeah, I know, yeah. whenever I tell anyone that I make games, the, the first thing they say is, really? <laughs> and, like that, in that yeah, way. and that's from my hairdresser to like publishers that I'm having meetings with, you know. We should so have a clue by really? then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think um, one of the big um, things that I always come up against online, the sort of frustrating comments I get anytime I post anything from a female-centric event that's mm -hmm. celebrating women in the industry, is if. People say, you know, if more women wanted to work in video games, they would. Like, why do we need specific events for women if, if women want equality, you know, right. you know, that kind of yeah. thing. But there's something that happens at a school level, I think, that sort of deters a lot of women or a lot of young girls away from STEM and from programming and game design. Like, it's socially not something that's cool or that women are supposed to be doing. And 
I think an exhibition like this, my hope is that you know, school groups will come through and it will start to change that because I think it's also just like a lack of role models and a lack of, it, like you say, normalising it. So yeah. for girls to come through and see that there are so many amazing women making cool games and that's um, something that's worth aspiring to, I think is so great. Yeah. It gives people permission mm. and it makes it feel accessible. Mm. Yeah. Do you think it's still a thing where um, there's a perception that games are relatively in the realms of men and boys, and if that's the case. I mean, when, when we were showing The Gardens Between, I, it was really heartening when, you know, many different kinds of people came to play the game, but I would still notice that, you know, every now and then, or somewhat often, um, you know, there would be a, a, a woman and a man, and he would go and pick up the controller, and she would, she would wait and watch. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, and I, I, I sort of, said, why don't you come over to this station and gave her the controller and said, you, you play, you know, this is a game for you as well. Um, and, yeah, I was just wondering um, if, if that's still a thing or, or not. I mean... I, I, I think it's probably still a generational thing as generational. well. I think yeah. it's even... Even in both networks that I've, that I've worked for, TV networks that I've worked for, we've still had to try and convince people that video games are an adult pastime as much as they are a pastime for children because right. people still don't see them that way. Yes, that so as I well. think as we move sort of through the next generation of gamers, I think will be less, less split, hopefully. Yeah. Can I add something to that? People play games in different ways and they, mm. they learn how to play games in different ways. And Cherie um, Gaynor-Ray, who was a lead at Creative at, at Sony, I'm not sure what company she's with now, so I can't <laughs> design her. Um, she wrote a book back in 2003, which was aimed at game developers, basically called, was it called Gender Inclusive Game Design? And one of the things she discusses in that is the fact that, that game developers are designing game training, like game tutorials, for men and not for the way that women like to play and women like to often sit back and watch and then do something. That's true. Mm -hmm. uh, whilst the, that the male play style was more to jump in. Mm. Um, and that, that when you're designing game tutorials, you need to consider that there's different ways to approach. And it's also something that um, Dan Golding and Lena Van Denter pick up in their book where they're discussing um, how playing, oh God, I can't remember which game it was, I have to ask Dan, well, it might have been Tekken. Um, hope I got that right, or it could have been Street Fighter. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> one of the games where one of the characters has a lot of really special moves, but they're not described anywhere, they're not revealed in the instructions. The only way you discover them is by a trial and error, uh, you know, button mashing experimentation. Um, so for this girl who loved playing this game and then she sat down and played her brother and he destroyed her because he knew all of these things which she hadn't discovered because her play style right. was yes. different. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so there are ways that people like to play. They're not necessarily completely gendered, no. but they're, they're things that developers need to think about yeah. in terms of making their games more accessible. Yeah. There, there's still a lot of subtle messaging and not so subtle messaging in a lot of games that say, you know, this is not for you. Not for you, to. yeah. yeah. Um, well, Brooke, both of your works feature in the exhibition. Um, so why don't we take a look, take a look now at uh, your work on Voxel Agents, The Gardens Between. So Brooke, the previous game that Voxel Agents published was um, 
train train conductor world, and that was a huge success with, with loads of downloads. And this is quite a departure from that in, I suppose, its theme and in its design and, um, I suppose, the whole feel of it. So, I guess, what was your inspiration in terms of the narrative for this? Mm. Um, so the the gardens between started with um, a time mechanic. Uh, so the Voxlators had done a lot of prototyping, and they had um, this idea to make a game around puzzles, being their their prime you know thing they love to make games about um, with time. So where you would you know leave an object in another scene and then change time and go back and get something. And it was very much clear that that was effective when it was changing events in a story. So it so it had then a, a story dressing it used to be um, in the form of Little Red Riding Hood, actually, which um, never took uh, place just yet. No, but so it had a story aspect. So they reached out to me uh, as a writer, um, and they actually reached out to a number of different artists outside of the studio to form uh, part of the development team for The Gardens Between. Um, the inspiration then was to tell a story with um, about time and moving time, so thinking about themes that could tie into that, which led to growing up, um, concept artwork. You know, there were a few art jams around this game that inspired um, these two characters, uh, Arena and Friend. And then it was my job to give them personalities and think about what their story was and how they related to one another. And one of the key things I wanted to do was tell a story uh, about a little boy and a little girl being friends rather than being sweethearts or saving one another or anything like that. Because you know, I had a lot of great guy friends growing up and I don't necessarily see that um, mm. in games. So uh, we wanted to talk about friendship and people that come and go in your life and, and make a mark on you, I suppose, um, especially when you're growing up and you're in a, a vulnerable state. Um, we also wanted to make a game as definitely from the start, our director, Henrik, wanted a puzzle game that was calm and meditative, and relaxing, something that didn't push you, there's no time limits, you can't die. Um, <laughs> something and also and our artist John um, has done you know amazing art direction and work um, on this game which has shaped it as it's gone on and given it you know the amazing character that it has um, so everyone on the team pretty much because it has no text or speech in it um, is part of the storytelling as well because they're part you know so much ties into like the animations give the characters personality the puzzles um, you know encourage you to reflect on the environments when um, we design the environments and talk about the design very much thinking about how the objects are telling a story because these gardens are memories mm. of, of their friendship so yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, because it, it, it must be tough as a writer um, telling a story with a game that, that has no dialogue in it. Um, what are some of the other different ways that you looked at um, communicating that relationship um, yeah. through these two characters? Um, well, that's a great question. Um, the way that they walk, first of all, so how they relate to one another. Um, they hold hands at certain stages, which we decided was okay. It's not too romantic, mm. but, um, you know, we're definitely sort of trying to, you know, uh, make sure that that's clear as a friendship stage. Also, as you go on in the game, um, I, I did a talk at Digger about how we avoided um, the quest archetype and instead did um, a plot that was more um, the voyage and return which is when 
characters fall into a strange world, mm. they learn some things and then they pop out with tools to solve their real-world problems, mm. essentially. So um, in this game, the colour palette um, changes quite dramatically three times throughout the game, which was key in telling the story and building up tension around something happening. They can't necessarily stay in this world forever. Um, and also what we set up at the start, you know, helps tell the story as well. So, um, yeah, the themes, it's very strong mood theme orientated atmospheric game so writing that is very very difficult again it's something that we all sit down and discuss and brainstorm and say so at this end of one of the first gardens you will have seen something being drawn in the sky which is a um, a constellation that's sort of our um, you know helping players understand that they're doing the right thing and, and moving along but also contributing to uncovering what the story is mm. so then we spend a lot of time thinking about what those what those moments are going to be because we only get you know a few of them to show in the game and all of them need to be significant moments in their friendship so that we get an idea of how important the friendship is so actually finding those key moments is really hard and so we've gone through you know so many of them mm bringing up our own experiences of childhood as, you know, things to use. So, yeah, it's been great. And as a writer, what drew you to video games specifically to tell your stories? Oh, yes. Um, well, I've always loved video games. Um, I think one of the things that I loved about them, though, was the story and the characters. So, for example, you know, I would disappear into Final Fantasy for ages when I was a kid and then when I wasn't playing Final Fantasy I would be replaying Final Fantasy out in the backyard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I really love um, games as a storytelling medium because you feel like um, in certain games that you're affecting the world mm -hmm. and you feel like that you're changing the story as you go, um, which, you know, is super cool feeling um, and, and I'm... I'm pretty platform agnostic as a writer, um, but I love games for their, yeah, for, for that feeling and for being so different. And the fact that you can, you know, interact and move the characters and, yeah, I think there's a lot of latitude there to tell story in different ways and different games do do that. Um, so I used to love RPGs and, you know, my favourite was Vampire the Masquerade, actually, <laughs> because you could replay so many different times as different types of vampires, and yes. they would all remember conversations that you'd had with them, which completely changed the experience mm -hmm. of the game. And that just blew my mind when I played it the first time, so I was like, oh, I've got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. Um, we might move on now to have a look at Nicole's work on Ninja Pizza Girl. So uh, something we didn't see in that um, particular clip there was that um, some of the sort of um, foes that Ninja Pizza Girl comes up against are other bullies that will try to sort of push her and, and laugh at her and that sort of thing. Um, so despite this being a really kind of fast-paced, energetic platformer, it's got quite a lot of depth to the themes in the game. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so as a, a family development team, uh, what we do tends to reflect what's going on in our family. And um, when we were making Ninja Pizza Girl, uh, one of our daughters was having a really, really hard time at school. Um, she has autism and she uh, struggled socially and she was getting bullied really badly and uh, really struggling with um, getting depressed and not wanting to go to school or leave her bedroom. And... <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, it, 
while making Ninja Pizza Girl, we were kind of looking at ways to help her and it was a lot of self-exploration from her part as well. So. so what impact do you see of having a, a character like Ninja Pizza Girl who's kind of really strong and tough and confident, um, I suppose, having on players, particularly young female players? Um, I think one of the things that I've found lacking I was examples of um, characters that were, you know, fierce and strong and resilient, but also girly. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to make a character where, you know, she's great at parkour and badass and everything, but she really likes to sew and <laughs> she likes um, uh, flappy things and <laughs> stripy socks and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk us through the design process for the characters? I mean, where do you even begin with something like that? Um, I think. The real world is just so amazing. Like, people are so interesting and uh, there's places in the world that are just so interesting. And you just gotta be curious about the world and not regurgitate things that are already out there. <laughs> the, the whole idea that all the stories have been told is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> So you've been working um, with the studio that you co-founded, Disparity Games, since 2011 as an indie game designer. But previously you worked with some much larger studios, um, some pretty iconic characters like Barbie, quite different from Ninja Pizza Girl. <laughs> um, so what are the major differences that you found in these two experiences? Uh, uh, the, being an indie developer, the freedom that you have is just amazing um, when you're working with Barbie, you have to get everything checked by about five different people before you can make, you know, even a minor change to the shade of pink. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, with um, great freedom comes great stress. <laughs> I bought um, my niece's game developer Barbie for oh, their birthday. I love game developer Which is Barbie. very exciting. She got career of the year from the You Can Be Anything collection. Yeah. <laughs> very exciting. Um, so I gave one each to my nieces and she's very cool. She's wearing kind of like jeans and a khaki jacket and she's got glasses mm. and she's got like a laptop and an iPad and she's developing games in there and stuff. And I gave it to my nieces and I turned around, I swear for a second, and they'd already stripped her and put dresses on. <laughs> Devo. <laughs> um, so let's uh, throw a few more questions out to the panel before we go to questions from the audience. Um, what do you particularly love about making indie games? Well, I think Nicole um, said it well with the, um, the freedom that you get to, to make the, the thing that you want to make and have, have a creative voice within a, within a small team. Mm. It is definitely a lot more work, um, but you, yeah, you, you can speak in turn around and talk to everyone working on the game, if that makes sense. You know, you're not in a huge sweeping building or department. You're making a game, you know, with people um, who are, you know, committed to the same vision that you are to, to make the same precious thing. So, yeah, I think, I think that's really special about indie development. And I guess also the license that it has to create different games without having to go through five people to, to change one yeah. thing, which hopefully means that new and different and interesting things can be made and I think are being made mm. as, a, as a result. Yeah. I also love that you can take your game to shows and actually watch people play. 
there's nothing better than actually seeing someone's face as mm. they, you're like, ha, oh, you're having fun. I made that fun. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose just greater access to download platforms and things like that. Now people yeah. can play games in their development stages and comment on them or even things like Greenlight and Steam's got a, a great initiative, which I think they're changing now actually, but um, you can kind of pitch a game online and then people can vote for it and if that gets voted then Steam will release it on their platform, which is awesome. Um, what are some of the best things that you've seen come out of the Australian indie games development scene? Because as you mentioned, Helen, you know, our big studios have kind of gone now and um, a lot of people are working either in mobile or in the indie scene. Um, do you have any kind of standouts that you've recognised? Me? Oh, anyone. Helen. <laughs> we're, all, we're all counting on Helen. Um, oh, there's so many. Um, yeah. Framed 2, Hacknet, uh, Ticket to Earth, Armello, Hand of Fate. Did I say that already? Um, Nicole's game. <laughs> uh, Yonder. Yonder. Yeah, Yonder actually it's just come out. Um, looks beautiful. It's yeah, so mm. Android catches. You write this down if you <laughs> Yes. Um, Hand of Fate. Party Pals, Orwell. Yeah, yeah there's so many. Um, <laughs> that's what I mean. I think, I think there are so many coming out, you know, from Australia and from indie development. It's maybe this is my own perception, but... I feel like when I talk to my friends about these games, you know, they, they haven't heard of them or they don't know that they're around. So I think in terms of curation and, and spreading the word and things like that, it's A, easier to spread the word because word of mouth is easier, but also having exhibitions like this and sort of saying, you know, games are being made here and to put in a little effort to find out, you know, some Australian-made games as well because they're, they're pretty great. Um, yeah. I think the best thing yeah. that has come out of the Australian game development scene is the community of yeah. Australian <laughs> totally. game developers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and then part of that community too is the way that people are moving between yeah. the kind of commercial games and just making these kind of mm. curious art experimental games and the kind of venues like SK Bar that pop up around that. And there's an event yeah. at SK tonight when you've finished here <laughs> of Games in Progress. Um, and everyone's very supportive of one another. You know, there's not a feeling of competitiveness or anything like that. Um, everyone, you know, gives feedback on each other's games and, mm. you know, helps them out with, you know, any, you know, uh, phase of the development, which is awesome. Mm. And so, there's no yeah. hierarchy of, you know, this kind of game is more important than this kind of game. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Um, are you allowed to say what you're working on at the moment, any of you? <laughs> <laughs> the Gardens Between and uh, Paperbark, actually. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us about Paperbark? Paperbark is a beautiful game. Um, I actually have um, a little bit of footage. I don't know if we have time. But um, uh, it's a game about the Australian bush um, and, uh, and a wombat. And it's beautiful. <laughs> um, and again, you know, uh, really narrative-driven, um, picture-book-style game um, wow. that... You know, by a very small team, a very talented team, who are actually in the audience today. <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah. Oh, that looks gorgeous. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm hooked already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the idea is that you're. Um, 
moving around these different um, landscapes that are all based on Australian bushland um, and your, you know, a narrative builds, which which I shan't reveal. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Again, narrative designing, um, looking at how we can use um, the way the player interacts and the sounds that they hear and really, you know, recreating what, what the Australian bush sounds and feels like and looks like and, you know, hearkening back to... Um, the picture books that you grew up with when you were younger, you know, mm. like um, Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie, um, all those, you know, beautiful books. So, right. yeah. And Nicole, are you working on something at the moment? Uh, I'm working on a, a new project, so it's still in its baby stages. I, see. <laughs> I know what that so. means, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I plug RMIT? Oh, please do. I'm working on RMIT, which is uh, in the games program there, which has 50% female students and 50% female staff and produces great students who produce beautiful games like um, Paperbuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, throughout your experience working in games, has the sort of advancement in technology changed your approach? I think that's a question for, for you. I haven't been... <laughs> 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 You can have really big textures now. Oh, the pixels. <laughs> they don't crash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you need a different sort of discipline nowadays. It used to be a very, making art for video games anyway, used to be a very technical skill, just um, fitting it within the constraints. Yeah. And, and now you, you're more constrained by style and viability and lots of other different things. A famous story for anyone who doesn't know about the reason why Mario has a mustache is that they couldn't uh, they couldn't have enough facial features on his face. So if you just put a big mustache in there originally, it kind of gave a semblance of a face without having to do all the features. <laughs> um, and where would you like the industry to go in the future? It's a huge question. Space. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Game development from space. Um, oh, I would love to see, you know, more... Um, game studios making more amazing games. I mean, hopefully, I, I believe we are growing according to the statistics in terms of how many studios are opening up and how many games are being made. Is that right, Helen? Do you...? Uh, yeah, it, it's... Oh, you know, damn numbers and statistics. Yeah, right. Um, when there's smaller studios, you have more. Mm. Um, so really it's a matter of employment, how many people are employed in games, but then then that the whole model for making games has got much closer to the film industry where, like your own experience, small teams yeah. form and then they disband and then they form around another creative project. Right. So it's everything's changing so much. It's, mm. it's, mm. it's very exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I imagine it has to do with um, government funding and support potentially. It also has to do with perhaps the perception around game making. Like I think that still people think that they can't necessarily make games unless they're employed to make games, mm. whereas people won't necessarily think that about writing or making you know, a mm. film or something like that. It's not necessarily a pastime or, or a hobby. You know, I'd love for games to be, I guess, normalised enough mm. for that to be something. It's like, what did you do on the weekend? I've just been working on that game that I've been, mm. you know, making, you know, while, while I do something else. You know, I think... I think 
when when it has that level of accessibility as well that does wonders for the art form in general mm. yeah and my last question is just what are you guys playing at the moment <laughs> um i actually am not playing a game at the moment but i have one ready to play next week when it comes out which is tacoma <gasps> yeah um, yeah so that was by the developers of Gone Home. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Super excited. Yeah, it comes out on the second of August. It's like in my brain, I'm like going to play that game at that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've just started playing Horizon Zero Dawn. Oh, yeah. So good. Yes. And I've just played, started playing Little Nightmares. Oh, yeah. Which is very pretty. Leeches. And scary. Leeches. Yeah. You don't play that if you have a thing for leeches. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what game are you playing, Stephanie? Gwent, always yeah. Gwent. <laughs> I love CCGs, so I love collectible card games. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm playing Monument Valley 2, and uh, I'm really looking forward to playing um, the prequel to Life is Strange, which is coming yeah, before the storm, I think it's called. Is that next week? I think so. <gasps> That's going to be a good week. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, well, let's throw it out to the audience for some questions. If you guys have any questions for the panel as a whole or any of our panellists specifically, please do ask them. Hey, uh, that was a great panel. Thank you so much. Um, what have been your fuck yeah, this is why I persevere moments? This, this is why I persevere. Definitely seeing people play the game um, at PAX or, or at a show event. Um, I remember we had we had this little girl come and play The Gardens Between and then she went away and she brought her little sister back and she's oh. like, here, I'll show you how to do it. Now, see, this is what you do. I'm See the little girl and the boy, they hold hands. And then and I was just like, this is why I do this. It was amazing. It was just blew my mind. It was beautiful. Um. Yeah, we, we had some amazing uh, emails uh, when we released Ninja Pizza Girl that uh, made me cry for a week and <laughs> made it all worthwhile. Yeah. Oh, people who'd been particularly touched yeah. by the game. Yeah, yeah. A, a guy whose um, niece had committed suicide from bullying and wow. yeah, just a lot of people poured their hearts out to us. It was, oh, we're obviously connected yeah. to them. And, yeah. yeah. Um, I think just from, I'm very fortunate to be in a position where um, I have a broad reach. So yeah, it's little girls, little girls mm. and parents of little girls saying that, um, you know, you've been in a, a great role model for my child and um, and just, you know, girls saying I got into game design because I saw you on Spawn Point and I grew up watching you and, and that kind of stuff oh, is really awesome. nice. Yeah, yeah you've cool. been a great role model for my children. Oh, thank you. Hi, <laughs> 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 uh, sorry. Um, in your opinion, what is the best way for like young individuals to get into the gaming industry? Like, what are some communities or resources that are available that can just help shed some light? Just especially like in employment and stuff. As a person who's had no experience in j jobs or anything, like, how would someone connect to people in the gaming industry? So, would you like to go first? My advice is generally make games, make friends, make games with your friends. <laughs> and yeah, just follow your heart, make sure you're doing what you love and the rest tends to follow. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of a number of free tools online that you can use to make games like Twine, um, RPG Maker and things like that. It's always great to, you know, you know, have your hand at it and see if it's something that you, you know, like and enjoy, like Nicole said, and get some other people on board to help. Um, there's also, you know, uh, the Independent Games Association have meetups that, you know, you're welcome to come along to. Um, oh, there's so many code, things, and I've just gone like completely blank. Yeah, code, code she, like makes games she makes and, games. Gig yeah, Girl thank Academy. you very much. The Gig Girl Academy runs um, She Makes Games, yeah. which are events for um, women to come along and try their hand at design, code. Um, and there's one other one. Business, I believe. Yeah, um, and in any case, a number um, of people from the industry come along and sit on panels and, and speak to attendees, so that's that's something great to do too. And you can always study games. <laughs> and you can study games with Helen. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Mostly you. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering in general, in interactions, for example, in everyday work, sometimes you'll just have people that are just dicks for the sake of being dicks. How do you navigate those sort of situations and go, is this person really mean if they're only mean to me? Is that because I'm a girl or is that for another reason? Because obviously depending on the reason why they're acting to you in a particular way, you have to navigate it a specific way. So how do you navigate that situation and go, are they being mean to me because I'm a girl and this, I'm the first girl in the office or I'm the first girl that's had to tell them that I'm their boss and they have to listen to me? Or do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? So you mean trying to work out if there's a, a unconscious bias or, or outward bias going on? Um, Oh, goodness, that can be really tricky. I mean, it's tricky because if you indeed are the only girl there, then it's very hard to sanity check with anyone else, you know, in the room. Is go, did, did that just happen? Like, did, mm. you know. Um, had a lot of, did that just happen? Yeah, Martin? did that just, just, I just want to run something by you. This happened and was that bad or? <laughs> yeah, that, um, that's one of the great things about us having communities now where we can connect. Um, you can sanity check and get advice and at least vent. But um, I think as women, we often tend to overthink things. And if someone's being a dick, it doesn't matter why they're being a dick. You, <laughs> <laughs> you push back against that. It's not okay. Yeah. Hi there. Um, so over-sexualization over of women in games has obviously been quite a negative trope. Um, do you think going forward there are... Are there new tropes that are occurring that uh, you hope are going to be diminished or at least made aware of? Like, do you see new things coming up about women, particularly like storytelling-wise, like women character in games? Because obviously we're seeing a lot of good, but do you feel like there's also some other... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But do you think there are new bads coming out as well? Um, I think... I think maybe just um, I don't know if there's any new tropes in particular. If if the woman isn't being sexualized, she's usually just used as a device to further the story of the male protagonist, which is just really boring. Um, so I think just once you have more female writers on the game, then you see a lot less of that. Um, I think just diversity in general is still a massive problem in games. Um, although I just last weekend was at the um, Overwatch World Cup stop and Overwatch is such a great game for in terms of like in terms of diversity they have characters that make sense 
for the class roles that they play in a competitive shooter, but they're all races and body types. And it's just so cool to see people cosplaying those characters and feel empowered to be able to be represented by a character who looks like them. Mm. Um, so I think if we see more of that, then we're not going to see women so um, pigeonholed in the same sorts of roles, mm. which is just really frustrating. Yeah, I think also just um, what I would like to see is it's great that we have some strong female characters in these games, but often that strong female character will be the only strong female character in that game, you know? Um, apparently there aren't any other women in the world. Um, so, I, you know, that really appeals to me when there's, you know, there's often not a great reason why everyone else on cast is a man. Like, mm. they could all feasibly be women. Mm. Like, I, I would love to play a game where there's one or two men around and all the you know, people, experts in the room just happen to be women because they just happen to be women, mm. you know what I mean? And then they all help, you know, them do – or the other one that I think persists too is the the woman in the ear, which is oh, she yeah. is she she is the knowledge centre, she's Oracle essentially, so she's not necessarily out on the ground but that's okay because she's super smart. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that one kind of annoys me. So personally, I want to make a game – that draws a lot on Call the Midwife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a different kind of strength. And um, also I look forward to seeing characters, both male and female, who are nurturing rather than strong. Mm. And uh, male characters that can have feelings because at the moment if you want a character to have feelings, it's a female. <laughs> so, um. Catherine Neal was making uh, a management sim based on baby farming. So it's a... Uh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Which was the Victorian practice of taking in orphlings and then, but you couldn't have too many kept alive because they cost too much to feed. <laughs> but you still wanted to be paid for taking in the orphlings. Mm. So you had to kind of balance it out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I think one of the one of the sort of looking at more cinematic games. One of the um, coolest AAA games I think that I've played recently. Um, that really sort of stuck with me was Uncharted 4 and primarily because it focused so much on the relationship between Nathan Drake and Elena and it seemed almost bizarre for a game that was so action intensive to spend so much time really developing this very real human relationship between the two of them and that it featured as such a like a prominent part of the game and I'll just talk about this without spoiling it but um <laughs> It, it initially it set it up that, you know, Nathan Drake has to do like one last adventure and um, he lies to her about what he's doing and she's – because they've got this great home home life and, you know, he needs to go out and be an adventure hero and she he doesn't want to tell her because she'll probably tell him not to and that's so boring and I was so frustrated because I was like, why are we putting the woman in that role of stopping the man from having fun and being brave? But, um, you know, the reality of that relationship was that you know, they'd both made a decision to change their life together and, and then they ended up having this massive confrontation which she's like, I want to do this stuff too. Don't you think I want to do this stuff too? And I've just spent so much of my time saving your life. You know, why why have you lied to me about this? And it was just this amazing moment where I was like, yes, naughty dog. Like, so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird saying, yay, naughty dog. There's this great moment in um, Dragon Age where you come across this skeleton oh yeah <laughs> in the tiny bikini yeah. <laughs> I'm a bikini the battle bikini that yeah. didn't save her yeah <laughs> mm. that 
was like, yay, fireworks. <laughs> um, thank you, everyone, for tonight. This is amazing. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of things before my question um, regarding the question about how to get into the industry. So I run a website called MCV Pacific, which is a B2B communication. Everything I've learned in the last five years is just get out there, network. So as mentioned, uh, the IGDA chapters in each state do events in Sydney. They call it Beer in Pixels, which is basically just devs getting together and showing things. Um, there's obviously the different Facebook groups. There's different communities, events like PAX, events like um, GCAP would, would be a great start for that. Um, also, Brooke, you'll be happy to know that uh, Dr. Jeffrey Brand, who writes the Digital Australia Report, which is the one that was referenced before, has said that um, each generation has a different way of telling their stories, whether it was photographs, letter writing in the past, you know, people making movies on their phone in this generation, but the next generation will be uh, told through games. <laughs> so it is good to know that. Um, my question, I think a lot of what Helen spoke about was around accessibility. Uh, and obviously in the early days, there was a lot of women with access to uh, the I guess the types of things they needed to make games. Um, you spoke about things like Steam Greenlight and obviously PC has been very good for a long time in getting people early access to games or creating a platform to release a game without the budget. Um, I think we're in a pretty golden age now where the likes of PlayStation, Nintendo recently and Xbox have got um, indie platforms and ways for people to play games. Um, they've also got their subscription models which gives you free access to some of these games. How important do you think that that's going to be uh, in transitioning the narrative away from uh, you have to play a AAA game to be a gamer? Um, and, and you know how exciting is that for you guys to have this platform to get your game out to more people? I'll start with the fact that when casual gaming first became really popular, uh, it was still not being counted as gaming. Like nobody who played casual games identified as as participating in, in games or, or playing games or being a gamer, even though they were some of the largest consumers of games. And at that point, um, it was women in their 50s who suddenly were the biggest consumers of games, playing casual games. Uh, but there was this enormous kind of rejection of casual games, even when a huge amount of really skilled gamers like you know Steve Mertzke, John Romero, Brenda Braithwaite slash Romero, all moved into this area. Um, it was still not considered by a lot of the games press as as like real gaming. Real gaming was AAA. Uh, I think we've we've moved beyond that now. I think that's. <laughs> I really don't think so. You don't think so? <laughs> no. Okay. So I, I worked on Yonder the Cloudcatcher Chronicles, which released last week, um, and so I followed the release pretty. You know. And um, it's so it's a non-combat game, um, just sort of exploration, a lot of cute in it, and uh, even the reviews that were positive were, this is a game where you don't hit things. Ah! <laughs> like, it just, they would spend 90% of the review justifying the fact that, or they'd spend 90% of the review panning it and, you know, is it even a game? <laughs> so that sort of mentality is still well alive. Yeah. And that's throughout the different kinds of gaming press. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm living in a sheltered workshop, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Echo yeah. chamber. <laughs> I feel like casual and hardcore gamer is kind yeah. of in the eye of the beholder in a way, yeah, you know, because I yeah. think for some people it's just down to the sheer amount of time you spend playing games. You know, mm -hmm. if you're gaming online every night, then you're hardcore. But if you only play it like once a week, then you're not. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I think it's different to everyone, but I think, yeah, changing the dialogue around that is really important because basically if you play Bejeweled on your phone, you're a gamer. I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
and you know, as you were saying, um, people who play games on their phone don't necessarily count themselves as no. gamers. No. Or you know, I see people on the train, you know, playing these hardcore strategy games, and I'm <laughs> like super surprised by the people that I see, you know, playing games. But it's really exciting to me because I'm like, oh, but but I bet they put it away and then don't think of it yeah. ever again, you know, um, and then you know, will continually play and, and be quite dedicated in their play in a way that, that a hardcore gamer mm, is. Mm, mm. Um, and I think that that helps. Like, I think that that helps normalise in terms of, you know, more access to these games, um, that game-playing hobby culture, yeah. you know, and I think that's super cool. Hello. There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, I, this is more on the getting into the industry side of it. Um, for example, when looking at, per se, a resume for someone going in for it, how much of it is, per, like, for example, having a degree versus portfolio? Like, how much of it is you looking at, oh, they've got this qualification, and how much of it is, oh, they've got a really good folio or, like, a good history in it? Look, so as a mum, Get a degree. <laughs> um, but if uh, when hiring people, yeah, definitely portfolio. It's very important. Yeah, I think it's um it's important to note too that you um, please forgive me, Helen. Don't necessarily need to have a degree that says games studies. Mm. I've done games all over it because. Um, is super beneficial and the nature of those degrees do, do mean that they are you can sort of pick where your expertise lies in terms of design or art or things like that but much like we were saying before um, you know the, the industry definitely needs business people and they need finance people and you know we need lawyers and we need um, you know uh, fine artists and we need so there are many other kinds of um, I guess uh, avenues, you know, and games, um, you know, definitely needs that, I guess, breadth of expertise as well. So um, think about, I guess, more, you know, to what Nicole was saying, portfolio definitely for those um, artistic, you know, roles. I'm, I'm not sure what, what role you're perhaps interested in. I'm making, I'm just having a guess, but, um, but also, yeah, a degree. I guess would yeah, be great in terms of and if you, what your focus is, what drives you. And if you want to be able to work overseas, it really helps to have the degree. So It's very hard to get work overseas without a degree. But also, yeah. you know, um, historically, when the games industry was very young, um, people came from all different areas like astrophysics, etc. And that made the, uh, the games industry incredibly exciting and diverse in terms of the kind of things, experiences that people were bringing to it. Um, now having a degree allows you to spend some time developing your skills, but making games is, is really the most important thing. So you can make those in a degree, you can make them on your own whilst you're studying astrophysics. Um, yeah. I think we've just got one last question. There was one over here, yeah. Uh, Helen, I loved your story about your dad buying you games through your childhood, and Brooke as well. Like, I, I love hearing stories like that because my dad did that as well, so that's so cool. Um, and I just wanted to ask, what do you guys think about um, games like uh, Dream Daddy, a dad dating simulator? Because it's like, I think, I haven't played it myself, but it seems like a, a game about a dad and his daughter, or a dad and his, you know, his 
kids. I haven't played um, it. And like, I have. I've kind of like, played it. I saw that you played it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, what did you think? Uh, should I play it? And uh, what do you think about it as a game? Like, because it's sort of like subverting the whole male protagonist thing, you know? Like, you get to make your dad instead of your, your instead of like <laughs> the burly guy who goes with you through space. It's like kind of cool, right? It's a bit different, and it's like being seen by a lot of people. So, what do you think about it? Um, so for those who are unaware, Dream Daddy Simulator is a dad dating sim um, where you uh, create a dad and... Not in a creepy way. Not in a creepy way. Um, and you ha go out and date other dads. And <laughs> it's awesome because there's just a very broad range of dads out there for you to date. Very diverse. And um, the funny thing about my experience with dating sims is this game and the pigeon one yeah. <laughs> had, had a full boyfriend. I don't know if you played that. So I haven't actually played like a, it's just, yeah. Anyway, so dad, dad dating sim or dream daddy um, simulator is awesome because it actually it spends quite a lot of time at the start setting up the relationship between um, protagonist dad and his daughter. So you instantly kind of value that relationship and you know it's going to be important that whoever you date your daughter has to get along with too and all that kind of stuff yeah it's it's really lovely actually definitely play it and designing your dad is super fun <laughs> um my dad's 81 he still mods really yeah that's awesome mods and trains um i think we might leave it there uh thank you so much for coming along tonight and if you could just give a big round of applause to all of our panelists you have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.